Most often when we observe the Lord's table, we do so with minimal comment or instruction. We sing a few hymns about the cross, we read the gospel account of the crucifixion, and then we quickly proceed with the elements. But from time to time, I think it's important to speak to the matter in a fuller manner, explaining why we do this, why we observe the Lord's table, and how we observe the Lord's table. The best text to help us with that is 1 Corinthians 11. And so I would invite you to turn with me there to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, I have preached from 1 Corinthians 11 multiple times over the last 15 years. According to my records, the last time was in January of 2015. Does anybody remember that occasion, January of 2015? Does anyone remember what I preached last Sunday night? I wasn't here last Sunday night. (laughs) Pastor Dan Johnson preached last Sunday night. I was at the installation service of a friend of mine uh, as assistant pastor at Chisago Lakes Baptist Church, a good friend of mine. But uh, I submit that it's okay for us to circle back, to read, review, study a text of Scripture that is so critically important to our practice as New Testament Christians. And so in preparation for our coming to the table this evening, I invite you to join me again in 1 Corinthians 11. What we do here this evening as a local church gathering here around the Lord's table, at at times it's been called the the Eucharist uh, from Eucharistia, which is the Greek meaning giving of, of thanks for what Christ has done. Other times it's been called a sacrament, an outward visible sign of an inward spiritual grace. It's been called a memorial. It's an observed as a, a memory of Christ. It's been called a feast, a reference to the accompanying Jewish Passover meal. It's been called communion, for in this we commune with Christ. And it's been called the ordinance because our Lord Jesus Christ ordained this to be a perpetual practice for his disciples until the day he returns. But what's most important for us this evening is not the nomenclature. It's not necessarily what we call it, but rather what's most important is why and how we observe it. And that is the teaching of this text, 1 Corinthians 11. If you look, 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 2 Paul is praising the Corinthian church for their diligence in keeping the traditions he had taught them. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The traditions meaning the teachings. Paul is praising them for following after what he had taught them. However, if you look ahead to verse 17, He does not praise them. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Look ahead to the latter part of verse 22. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul begins with a rebuke. That's number one in your notes. If you picked up an outline that I placed there in the foyer, the rebuke. And perhaps there's been a time in your life when you have been rebuked. You've been told that you were wrong and that you needed to change. Perhaps there are other times in your life when you have been the one rebuking another and you have instructed another for how they are wrong and how they need to be changed, need to change. And rebukes can be painful, either to give or 
to get. However, a rebuke can also serve to, to save one from further consequence if that rebuke is, is heeded. Paul is rebuking the Corinthians. He says, I praise you on the one hand. On the other hand, I cannot praise you. I rebuke you in two ways. First, for division among the people. Division among the people. Look with me at verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So Paul is addressing divisions. Now, Paul first addressed divisions in the church of Corinth earlier on in, the, in this letter for the, the, the people had different loyalties to different personalities. Some were saying, I'm of Paul. Others, I'm of Apollos. And there was envy and strife and divisions among them. And Paul rebuked them in chapter 3, calling them carnal and baby Christians. But their divisions were not simply disruptive. They were destructive, which is why Paul told Titus to reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning. And so a, an early symptom of spiritual sickness in a church is division and dissension and discord within that church. But at the same time, Paul admits that, there, that some of the divisions, verse 15 is the word divisions there in my New King J James, or, or factions in verse number 19, are necessary evils because the, the factions or these divisions were because of heresies among the people. Let's do a quick word study here. In verse 18, where my Bible reads divisions, it's, it's the word schism. And then in verse 19, the word translated in my Bible, factions, is the word heresy. So there are some schisms because there is some heresy. And those who cause the schism by heresy would be exposed, leaving those approved to be recognized. Think of 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. But here's the thing. The heresies in Corinth were not so much heresies of doctrine, but of practice. It wasn't so much a matter of orthodoxy, but of orthopraxy. And it's not necessarily that they believed the wrong thing, but they behaved in the wrong way. Perhaps you've never thought of, of one's conduct as being heretical or Heresy, and, and that was the nature of the, this matter. The Corinthians' conduct, their behavior around the Lord's table was heretical. And it was causing divisions, just as their carnality caused divisions back earlier in chapter 3. So Paul rebuked them for the divisions among the people. But secondly, when they gathered together as an assembly, there was digression from the purpose, letter B. There was division among the people. There was also digression from the purpose. Look at verse number 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And so the rebuke 
is for digression from, from purpose. And it was common for the early believers, the Christians, to eat meals together, perhaps similar to our church picnics or potlucks or fellowship meals. They were called love feasts in the first century. And following each love feast, a church would conclude with an observation or an observance, I'm sorry, of the Lord's table memorial. However, in this case, in the Corinthians case, it became a selfish, gluttonous, drunken occasion. And because of the abuses that were described in verse 21, the love feasts and the observance of the Lord's table eventually had to be separated to protect the Lord's table observance. In time, the love feast disappeared entirely from early church history. But in Corinth, things had digressed to the point that when they met together, it was not to observe the Lord's table after all, as was their original purpose. It was simply to eat. There was a digression in their assembly as a church. It was for the free food. It was for the meal and all of the social um, activity that might surround that. And so they failed to be a properly purpose-driven church, if you will, as described in Acts 2. In Acts 2, the early disciples uh, met purposely. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread, that's the Lord's table, and prayers. They continued daily with one accord. And this is a, a threat for any church, ours included, that we might digress from our primary purpose as a church if we're not careful. If you look at our administrative calendar as a church, there's a lot going on. In fact, some, some days I feel like I can hardly keep up with all of the activity that is happening as a church, a school, as a seminary. We have services and ceremonies, but do we ever lack the reality? Or perhaps we have forms and functions, but do we ever lack the substance? And we too are in perpetual danger of forgetting our purpose for assembly. We're not a country club. We're not a social club. We're not a restaurant. We're not a YMCA, right? You you see where I'm going with this. And none of our activity is inherently wrong, but it can eclipse our primary purpose for gathering. And so Paul rebuked the Corinthians for digressing in their observance of the Lord's table. For that reason, he rebuked them. Number one, the rebuke. Number two, there is the remembrance in verses 23 through 25. And of course, this is most familiar to us. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 25. For I read these verses on each occasion when we observe the Lord's table. Paul says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the remembrance, verse 25. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Me. Conservative scholars agree that 1 Corinthians was probably written before any of the Gospels, with maybe the exception of the Gospel of Mark. But if that's true, if Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians before the Gospel accounts, then this is the first biblical record 
of Jesus' last Passover supper with his disciples. And Paul's instructions here are the first biblical institution of the Lord's table observance as we know it. Of course, you're familiar that at that last Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus was doing a a couple things. He was first, letter A, he was interpreting something old. Interpreting something old, letter A, the original Passover meal that was observed by the children of Israel included a lamb, unleavened bread, leaven being a picture of, of, of sin, and, and wine. The Passover meal observed by the Hebrews ever since Exodus, uh, their exodus from, from Egypt was to be a remembrance of their exodus, of their deliverance from slavery and bondage in Egypt. Listen as I read to you from Exodus chapter 12. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised the promised land, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service that you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. And so since that time, the Hebrew people, the Jews, have observed the Passover feast in in this way. I've copied for you there in the back of your notes what, what John MacArthur has written in describing the Passover meal. The Passover meal began with the hosts pronouncing a blessing over the first cup of red wine and passing to the others present. Four cups of wine were passed around during the meal. After the first cup was drunk, bitter herbs dipped in a fruit sauce were eaten And a message was given on the meaning of Passover. Then the first part of a hymn, the Hallel, which means praise. It's related to hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallel, Yah, or praise Yahweh, was sung. The Hallel comprised of Psalm 113 to 118. And the first part sung was usually 113 or 113 and 14. After the second cup was passed, the host would break and pass around the unleavened bread without yeast, which represents sin in the scriptures. Then the meal proper, which consisted of roasted sacrificial lamb, was eaten. This is the the supper meal. The third cup, after prayer, was then passed, and the rest of the halal was sung. The fourth cup, which celebrated the coming kingdom, was drunk immediately before leaving. And so this Passover meal is a remembrance of what God did for Israel. What a great event in the life of a, of a Hebrew family as they recounted their history and they celebrated their deliverance from bondage. But beyond simply interpreting something old, letter B, Jesus was instituting something new. No longer did this Passover meal point backward to Israel's exodus out of Egypt. Now it was to be a remembrance of the deliverance that Jesus himself would be providing for his his disciples, his sinless body in his shed blood in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of Egypt, but in remembrance of of me, the ultimate Paschal lamb or Passover lamb. Look at verse 26, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So this is a retelling now. Number three, the retelling. 
There's the rebuke, the remembrance, now the retelling, and the word proclaim in verse 26. It means to make known, to publish, to announce, to show, to declare. And just as the Passover feast was a celebration or a declaration of, of what had taken place in Egypt, now this was to be a celebration of declaration as to announcing the death of Christ, letter A, announcing the death of Christ. The retelling beginning with the announcing the death of Christ. And, and so what we do here, church, in a moment, is we observe the Lord's table. It's not a dirge. It's a declaration. And what we do around this table is a retelling to all who are here, to anyone who's a watch, watching, we are announcing or declaring the death of Jesus Christ. For it's by his sinless body, the death of his sinless body, and the shedding of his sinless blood on the cross that we have the forgiveness of sin. And so we are announcing this and retelling the gospel story. I recall years back when my young children would sit here in the Morell family row, right? I think for 15 years now we sat down here and we would observe the Lord's table and my children would question What's going on? What's this about? Can I have some, right? It gives a great opportunity for us to retell the gospel. Well, children, let me explain to you what is symbolized by the, the bread and the cup. These are pictures of Jesus' death on the cross, his shed blood on the cross. What a great evangelistic opportunity with your own children to explain what they're observing here in this case. And so we announce the death of Christ. But secondly, letter B, we anticipate the coming of Christ. We are to do this, verse 26 says, um, till he comes. Now, some churches observe this ordinance every single Sunday, every week. Other churches every month, that's our practice. Some observe the Lord's table on New Year's Eve. For the Jews, of course, this was a once-a-year observance, but the early church adopted it as a daily practice. Can you imagine that? Every single day. Why would they do that? Because they were doing so in anticipation of the coming of Christ. And it could be even today. The principle is as often as you do it, you do it till he comes. It anticipates the coming of Christ. Of Christ, And so our retelling looks back to the cross. It looks forward to Christ's return. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Paul gave a rebuke. Paul identified the remembrance. Number three, the retelling. Number four, the repentance. The Lord's table observance demands a necessary examination of ourselves so that we do not participate in an unworthy manner, but rather that we repent of sin that we might be harboring, hiding in our lives. So, so what does this mean? In the context, specifically, most specifically, context is king. 
We look to the context. Paul is addressing division among the people in verses 18 to 20 and a digression from their purpose in verses 20 to 22. And so most specifically, the unworthy manner of coming to the table was the Corinthians in in their division and in their their digression, as I'm calling it. But additionally, we could extend this self-examination to many other areas of harbored or hidden sin. And so let me offer you a few suggestions. What about this evening, as we're here together as a church, about to go to the table, what about hypocrisy? What about honoring the Lord with our lips while denying him with our lives? That's coming to the table in an unworthy manner. What about a spirit of bitterness or hatred toward one another? Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 5, before there is spiritual worship or spiritual service that takes place, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come again. Maybe this evening you don't know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. Maybe you have not received him by faith alone, trusting him for the forgiveness of your sin and everlasting life. Perhaps you have refused to obey him in believer's baptism as Jesus has commanded us to be baptized in testimony of our salvation. Participation here this evening at this table would be an unworthy manner. The religious ritual or, or the simple motion and the tradition. Maybe for you there's another area of specific disobedience. Maybe you've disobeyed in a sin of the spirit. Nobody knows. Nobody's observed or seen your manner of life. But it would render you unworthy. There are many ways in which we can approach the table unworthily. And so examine yourself. It's personal and it's private. But you have an occasion between you and the Lord for repentance Confession and forsaken, forsaking of sin, repenting from that with the promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, to add balance to our understanding of, of what's being taught here, be careful that as we come to the table that this observance is not a scheduled confession where we ask, Now let me think, what sin have I committed in the last month since my last confession at the Lord's table? Paul is simply demanding an acute awareness because of what we are doing here. And the danger is the chastening of the Lord. Look at verse number 29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, the word should be judgment there or chastening, not damnation. The King James Version renders it damnation, which is unfortunate because the word is is krema, which means the discipline of the saved. At the end of verse 32 is the word katakrema, which describes the condemnation of the lost. Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is no condemnation, katakrema, to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the consequence of unworthy participation is not the eternal damnation or condemnation of the unsaved. Rather, it's the judgment or the chastening of the saved by God. And Paul alludes to to that chastening even being physical illness or sleep or, or even death. 
And so the solution for us is twofold. First letter A, there's self-judgment in verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Okay? And then secondly, the solution or the alternative is God's judgment, verse 32, letter B, is God's judgment, verse 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned. That's the katakrima. That's the damnation of the unsaved with, with the world. So judgment or chastening is a work of God that keeps us from damnation or condemnation with the world. Again, turn your notes over here, and, and, and John MacArthur helps us in understanding this concept. He says, God sends individual chastening to punish offenders back toward righteous behavior. And he sends death to some in the church to encourage those who remain to choose holiness rather than sin. Even if the Lord were to strike us dead for profaning his table, it would be to discipline us, to keep us from being condemned. The thought is powerful. We are kept from condemnation, not only by decree, but also by divine intervention. God chastens us to keep us from falling from salvation and will even take our life, if need be, before that could happen. Folks, that's heavy. In fact, it almost sounds heretical. It's so heavy. (laughs) But in preparation to come to the table, it's critical and crucial. And may God forgive us for the times that we have casually approached this ordinance. Verse 33. Verse 33. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Have you ever watched our deacons serve us? Um, at, at our observance of the Lord's table. They, they serve the bread and the cup. They're all lined up. They sit here on the front row and they stand up at the same time and they sit down at the same time and, and they march back and forward and it's uh, quite the ceremony. Why all of the, the order? We do things decently in an order lest we minimize the significance of what we do And we do things decently in order to be deliberate about this memorial, lest it be a free-for-all, a first-come, first-served. And uh, the selfish people get what they need, and the slow people are are left with the leftovers. That's why we do this in such an orderly fashion. Verse 34, but if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgments. And the rest I will set in order, Paul says to the Corinthians, when I come. And from verses 33 and 34, you might just fill in number five, relationships. Relationships. My brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. There is a deference to one another. It's a, it's a simple thing, Corinthians. Wait for one another. Be patient defer to one another. So much of our Christian practice is about one another. And in this way, we mirror the character of Christ from Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And so in a moment, as we sing a hymn and we come to the table, let our mind be upon Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. As if we were standing there beneath the cross, that we might see Jesus in his sacrifice on the cross and that we might adopt his mind.